Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that punches fascists. Today we have Julia, Zoe, Laura, and Bianca. And today we're talking about unmasking the far right. What are they up to with the inauguration and beyond? And what do we need to know about them as leftists to protect ourselves and our neighborhoods? And today we're joined by a fabulous guest, Talia Levin. She has immersed herself in the online world of far right extremism, so you don't have to. And we're really excited to hear what she knows. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Talia. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, To get started, do you wanna introduce yourself for our listeners and just share a little bit about the work that you do? Yeah, uh, so um, I'm Talia. I am a freelance writer. I write for um, all kinds of places, um, the New Republic, GQ, places like that. And um, in October, I released a book uh, called Culture Warlords, My Journey into the Dark Web of White Supremacy. That was the culmination of writing about the far right for a few years. And um, it involved me doing some gonzo stuff, going undercover in various racist chat rooms and getting to know different parts of the far right web. Um, And that's work I've continued since the book was released in October. Um, So it's been a weird few weeks and it's weird that the Trump era is over and it's just a lot of emotions. (laughs) Absolutely. It's hard to feel like it's like fully over in the sense that all the people are still here you know (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. I mean like you hope that people don't sort of lapse back into total complacency you know a lot of the memes like oh time to go back to brunch and you're like well I I hope some of the political activation people felt remains um Mm -hmm. you know because the the like you know neo-nazis and the putschists the insurrection types and conspiracy theorists that really became very active in the trump era are still very much around uh you know the curved gym neo-confederates the soccer moms of massive resistance are still like big parts of our political life as a country and um you know, I would hope that at least some of the people that started to pay attention keep paying attention. Yeah, for the people at home, we're recording this on the day of the inauguration, which a dear friend of mine today referred to as the Lib Coachella, which honestly, like, couldn't be more accurate. Oh, my God. (laughs) Friend who listens to the pod, so hi. Um, And... Talia, before we get into the nitty gritty, I just want to say on behalf of all of us and probably all leftists, especially all of us that aren't cis men, uh, thank you for your service. Oh, gosh. Uh, Well, you know, every poster is a warrior. Uh, (laughs) uh, But yeah, no, I I appreciate it. It's been like a weird nerve wracking two weeks. And I admit Mm -hmm. there was like a big part of me that signed a breath of relief when like you know, the worst crimes that happened at the inauguration were against, like, I don't know, fashion or whatever. Nothing bad <laughs> or violent happened. There were nice jewel-toned coats 
and um, cringe tweets and, and, and nobody died. And so that's a win. I mean, mm. nobody died at right. the inauguration ceremony. Well, other people died of plague elsewhere, but whatever. Yeah. Um, before we get into some of the more recent stuff that has been happening, um, I just wanted to ask, how did you first get interested in studying the alt-right? Like, where did that begin for you? Um, well, I'm Jewish, and uh, my first job in journalism was at, like, a Jewish newswire, and one of my jobs was moderating the comments. <laughs> Um, Mm -hmm. not very fun at any publication, but, you know, I was like, oh boy, there are a lot of Nazis that are online and, you know, uh, my grandparents are Holocaust survivors, were Holocaust survivors and, uh, um, you know, so it was vivid to me that there were still such virulent anti-Semites online. And then after Unite the Right in 2017, I really decided to start writing about this stuff and, uh, you know, when you look into the abyss, it looks back at you. And in my case, they found like a fat Jewish feminist who hated their guts. And so they <laughs> returned in kind. Um, and I don't know, after years under that scrutiny, I kind of, uh, you know, and I was writing pieces about them as well. Um, I decided to sort of go all in and, and write a book about the metastasis of neo-Nazism and and far-right ideologies online. Yeah. Um, have you been following online spaces where people who participated in, like, the January 6th events and the attempted coup were hanging out? Yeah, I mean, I uh, several of those spaces have sort of been scattered to the four winds uh, of sort of belated uh cover covering their asses by tech companies like parlor you know uh um but uh you know and certain facebook groups have have been nuked uh but you know yeah i'm still following on telegram on mymilitia.com and you know different different websites where uh what putschists and their supporters are gathered um and it's been Mm -hmm. uh sort of interesting seeing the various shifts in tone and uh (laughs) my militia sort of put out a like hey we should probably cool down our rhetoric in here like i don't know yesterday or something i think because they saw that people were starting to get arrested for the sixth right yeah, could you talk a little bit more about that? Like, what was the mood kind of leading up to January 6th in those spaces? And then what what's changed since then? Like, what has it been like in the past couple of weeks? Um, well, you know, I'm not everywhere at, at all times, but I can tell you that right. in the groups that I was looking at after, like before and, and immediately after the election, during the sort of stop the steal protests in November and December, you saw this sort of continual turning up of the heat on the rhetoric where it was just like apocalyptic, conspiratorial, you know, uh, this sort of perennially deferred conviction that like, oh, now the election is going to be overturned. And then, um, you know, really all this stuff about like just the array of sort of 
theories about Biden being a Chinese communist stooge and the new world <laughs> order wish. and they're taking away your guns and Dems are going to impose martial law. I mean, it's all like as most far right rhetoric is, it's sort of a pastiche. It's like a little bit Turner diaries, a little bit nineties conspiracy theories, a little bit protocols of the elders of Zion. Like it's all this just like melange of sort of, kitschy stuff whose upshot is like you know there's a there's gonna be a new civil war prep your bug out bag you know the the communists are trying to take over and uh aligned with satan and blibbity blah but but the 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 tone was very apocalyptic and um i was for a time embedded with the militia like doing i mean not physically but in their comms uh and sort of like listening to what they were saying around the election it was like pretty wild just getting very militant um i would say like i knew january 6th was going to be a big deal because trump himself was sort of calling for it to be wild and uh i think despite the fact that the stop the steel protest in dc in november and december had been you know they'd resulted in stabbings and there had been big crowds but it wasn't sort of mass violence, but I think a lot of us were quite nervous about January 6th uh, in the, mm-hmm. the people who study the far right. I mean, in retrospect, not nervous enough, but, you know, uh, definitely there was a sense of like, this is, this one's going to be bad, huh? And it, and it was almost bad enough to make people take the far right seriously for a hot minute. <laughs> Yeah, totally. I guess I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like, what's your sense of what was driving people to their actions on the 6th? Like, is it mostly was it mostly people who are diehard Trump supporters or just people who saw this as a good opportunity to kind of stir shit up? I think the answer is both. Uh, There were some pretty militant neo-Nazi figures that I recognized for my work like Tim Gione or Baked Alaska, Nick Fuentes was there, like sort of hardcore neo-Nazis were less kind of like Trumpists and more accelerationists, just like, uh, you know, militantly anti-Semitic, wanting to usher in social collapse. Um, They use Trumpism when they find it convenient and otherwise like kind of are just very ardent anti-Semites and, and, and white supremacists. And then uh, you had militia groups like the Three Percenters and the Oath Keepers that were there following their warped version of a constitutional mandate against tyranny. In this case, tyranny in the form of an election that was decided in a way they didn't like. Uh, you know, people are starting to get arrested on federal charges for like being in the Oath Keepers, which is so wild to me because it's just been open. All this shit has been like in the open for years and like law enforcement has just like not even close to given a shit about it before. Uh, And then um, I think you did have, I think the people who's like defense is like, I just got caught up in the moment and they're like realtors or whatever uh, or lawyers or doctors uh, were probably just like, the most diehard Trumpists, like, you know, the, the principal beneficiaries of white supremacy kind of working to enforce its, its continued rule. So that was what made the event, I think, so chaotic and so uh, 
scary was that it was really this mix of far right tendencies, um, sort of the more quote unquote mainstream mingling with the real fringe, the violet fringe and uh, the lines between those have gotten blurry and blurrier over the years. And particularly with the physical intermingling around the stop the steel protests. Uh, And, you know, now with the sort of like a lot of folks who have been, on the QAnon train for anywhere from months to years, uh, really thought that today the inauguration was going to be a big fake out and, you know, there would be mass arrests. And I think the, the going theory was that Trump would like announce on the emergency broadcast system that there would be a 10 day blackout and then would culminate. in as the QAnon fantasy has always been, mass military tribunals and executions of all their pedophiliac satanic enemies in the democratic party and celebrities. And instead they got Lady Gaga and JLo uh, singing and, um, you know, Biden just like being inaugurated. So there's this sort of QAnon meltdown happening and it's going to be interesting to see. I think my like armchair prediction is some of those guys are going to, uh, sort of stick with the plan, trust the plan, say, oh, you know, like, find rationalizations. I mean, that's kind of what, like, cult leaders have been predicting the end of the world and then rationalizing when it doesn't happen for a long time. Uh, Others will maybe turn towards different tendencies on the far right, whether that's more militia, more neo-Nazi, and maybe some will, will break away. Um, you know, but I think people very much don't like to be humiliated or proven the wrong. Many people were alienated from their families and sacrificed a lot for this dream of Q. And so I think some will keep, keep trudging on even without the godlike figurehead at the center of it all, Donald J. Trump. Right. Um, that's a scary thought, but I, also I, a very eloquent way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, sorry, I speak in paragraphs. It's like a bane. I don't know. No, no that was, sorry. Yes, that's one of our um, rules on this podcast. No, you know, no sorry for minor, like, We're small not things. apologizing here. <laughs> you were just speaking brilliant truths, okay? <laughs> um, oh. I wanted to, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no. I was just like, well, thank you. If you put it that way. No, stop. <laughs> don't. <laughs> yes. Um, so I wanted to turn to talking about your book a little bit. Um, so in your book, Culture Warlords, you kind of infiltrated different far right groups, including by going undercover as a white nationalist woman, essentially to like catfish fascist men into revealing identifying information about themselves. Um, I think this is an amazing idea. It's really genius. And I'm just curious how you came up with it. Well, uh, in the case of whitedate.net, the the sort of origin, like original per, like place where I started that scheme, mm-hmm. it was really just looking at the site that gave rise to that idea. Like, they were really suffering from a deficit of women. I think they still are. Uh, 
and they actually had a page um, called like the mini flyer where they encouraged men to print out a flyer um, that said, you know, uh, you look like one of us. Our survival is as important as the survival of the Siberian tiger. Join us on whitedate.net. And you're supposed to hand this to a white woman that you saw that looked, I don't know, Aryan um, on the street. And I mean, that's how like, you know, it was like men are unfortunately at the vanguard of this movement. Uh, And so I, I mean, I saw that and I was like, okay, this seems like really, really, really ripe ground for catfishing. I mean, it wasn't hard to, to settle on it after I saw that. I mean, it was just like, hello, catfish me. It's kind of what that, that came to mind. And so I threw together a persona and, um, you know, yanked some photos that I made sure weren't searchable back to their original owner. And uh, like, you know, set about sweet talking some, some Nazis to learn as much as I could. Yeah, love that. Yeah, so of course, I'm sure in a lot of ways you knew what you were getting into when like deciding to do this research and had already dealt with um, a lot of the like online comments as you addressed. But I was wondering if there was anything particularly surprising to you as you got deeper into these online spaces, whether it be like people you interacted with, or if it was like kind of like your own reactions to it or anything like that, that was surprising. I think a one lesson that a lot of us have learned in the Trump era is uh, surprised and appalled are two different things. Um, I, I There was little that I was like authentically surprised by, but much that I was appalled by, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I think uh, one of the points that I tried to make throughout the book and that I've made in, you know, lots of different articles and stuff is like, there's this uh, persistent, really persistent myth that libs love that like, uh, you know, every white supremacist is sort of a toothless Cletus redneck and their mother's basement, you know, who can barely string two words together. They're yokels. Right. And then, you know, when you look at the, crowd making up the capital insurrectionists when you look at even just like you know marches uh these right-wing marches uh like you can see that that's not true like these are often prosperous business people business owners like there was a realtor who took a private jet to the capital like you know and and uh the same is true even in these like more fringe radicalized spaces that like these people are trading homebrewed audiobooks. They're like discussing, you know, fascist uh, ideology. They have like, you know, discussions about religion, discussions about, uh, you know, different aspects of history that they use as proof texts of like their sort of malevolent ideology. Um, a lot of them are like middle class, upper middle class kids or, or, or some middle aged people you know uh it's not kind of a like to to dismiss people as sort of all lumped geographically in red states or and Mm -hmm. all sort of socioeconomically deprived this is like 
you know, not only is it classist uh, and not only is it sort of self absolving in the sense that it's really what it's really saying is it's no one in my nice neighborhood. It's no one in my homeowners association or no one who can be in kindergarten with my precious child, Braley. Uh, it's like, you know, it's also blinds us to the magnitude of the problem. There really is not a socioeconomic stratum, a level of educational attainment, uh, an area code that can inoculate you from these ideas. And I think that was just driven home to me more and more clearly every day that I was immersed in, in, in this world. Yeah, totally. And there are white supremacists who shop organic too. Although uh, there was one like survivalist neo-Nazi cooking channel that I subscribed to. And I have to say the food always looked like shit. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was like the on Telegram, this encrypted app that they really like. A lot of QAnoners are now flocked there and exiles from parlor or whatever. Um, but uh, the channel was called the Soup Nazi. Like, like, sometimes they're funny. Like, he's like, yeah, I am the soup Nazi. But he would just post <laughs> pictures of, like, I bartered, like, you know, hog flesh for these turnips. And it looked terrible. Um, so, you know, at least they're not necessarily gourmet chefs. Let's put it that way. All, like, all the food is white, too. I love that roast. Just, like, also their food's bad. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's it's sort of it's like for people on the neo-Nazi beat, like everyone who has like covered, you know, Gab and Parlor and all this stuff. It's like any time you see someone posting a picture of the food they make, it like looks like shit. Like I don't know what cookbooks they're using. It's like maybe they only use cookbooks by white authors from like the 1970s, but like like the mise en place is fucking awful. Like at least they're That's not pretty funny. Well. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. So in a similar vein, I guess like in preparation for this episode, I had read this excerpt of your book that was like adapted for the nation, where you had talked about, as you were talking about earlier, when you were like on this website whitedate.net and like basically like catfishing people, and so there was this quote from that excerpt that I really it, it like really struck me um and it was like quote unquote here's this truth that emerged for me the worst people are still people their humanity is impossible to disregard but it does not absolve them if anything it makes their choices more abhorrent surrounded as they are by the banality of life of a life indistinguishable from other lives and so as I was reading that I was kind of reminded of everybody talking about what happened on January 6th, but like specifically how this is, I think maybe this was just like on Twitter, but it was like people joking that like the fascists who stormed the Capitol would just be like going to Olive Garden for dinner that night. And that, like Olive Garden was trending on Twitter for like a long time after that. Um, but it struck me because like in some respects, like, you know, they're human, they have like human needs, they eat and socialize in restaurants. Um, but I guess my question with respect to that was like did you have those have any similar thoughts about um the people who stormed the capitol as 
you had from that excerpt from your book where you were on whitedate.net talking to people there? I mean, sure. I, I, I'm not the first to comment on the banality of evil, but mm-hmm. I think, you know, there's this, there's often this surprise when uh, journalists cover, you know, I mean, I'm thinking explicitly if there's a really egregious, like, New York Times profile of a neo-Nazi like named Tony Hovader and uh it was just kind of this like it was it was literally I think it was literally called like the neo-Nazi next door or something like that mm-hmm. but it was like oh he's like charming when we meet in person he has a wife he has a job like he has a house you know he like cooked spaghetti <laughs> you know and I'm just like okay yeah that's like true of a lot of these people that's true of like most of them that they have jobs and and lives like that doesn't inoculate you from being like a fascist piece of shit you know and and so to me it's like you know people talk about humanizing as a danger and and to me I think like yeah I mean you don't want this like weird condescending tone of shock that a Nazi could be like a relatively normal sounding person. Uh, But I also think um, the flip side of that is like, to me, like I said, the, the, the humanity, you know, doesn't absolve people. The fact that people make dozens or hundreds of human choices to center hate in their lives and make it the focal point of their desires. Like, like how is that, how does that absolve them in any fashion? And if anything, it's, it's the reverse, you know, just as you have to make dozens or hundreds of human choices to center your life on justice. Like you have to make dozens or hundreds of human choices to center your life on, on injustice and cruelty. So like, of course these were people, yes, they eat and breathe and shit and make mm, one fascist love to one another. But uh, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't dull the teeth of the fight. I think Mm -hmm. if anything, the reverse, you know, we have to acknowledge that the enemy is human because I think casting putschists and neo-Nazis as monsters is also a form of self absolution. I think that like really is, um, I think what you're getting to also showed up like the day Trump was elected, any white person, especially being like, so shocked at this i think it's important to understand that the rise of fascism didn't just like happen with trump um in the united states right uh it's been here and they they Mm. so i just think it's it's an interesting take and it's important like in multiple contexts yeah i mean one book that uh i read as sort of background research and i would recommend to readers uh, to listeners of the podcast especially because you know as as white women uh you know i mean i'm a i'm a jewish woman i'm i'm white i am white but you know nazis don't think i'm white but i'm i'm whatever i'm white uh but as white women we have a complicity in in white supremacy that i think is too often unaddressed and unremarked upon um, so a book that I do recommend, in addition to my own, of course, uh, is um, Mothers of Massive Resistance um, by Ka- uh, Kathleen Blee. It's a, it's a, a really fascinating look into how white women 
um, in the South were sort of the principal opponents of school desegregation and organized, you know, all of these marches in favor of continue the continuance of segregation, how they were sort of the backbone of the white supremacist movement and how it was sort of seamlessly woven into lives of domesticity and banality. I, you know, I think um, domesticity, banality, prosperity, like these are just as often the, the backdrop to fascist grievance as anything else. You know, sedition brews just as well in the suburbs as anywhere else. Uh, and I think we lend these um, white nationalist sentiments more power when we implicitly assume they come from poverty or privation. Uh, you know, when that is very, very, if not, you know, more often than not, not the case. Uh, as Adam Serwer mm -hmm. put it in the Atlantic, like what they were really protesting when they overran the Capitol was uh, uh, they were, they perceived that they had been robbed of their innate right to rule. Mm. So I guess at this point, like there's just so many different far right groups that seem to have some level of a following or prominence out there that, for me, like as an anti-fascist trying to keep track of what fascists are doing, I feel like I always have a hard time figuring out like the exact politics or strategy of every one of these groups. And I guess I was just curious if you see any kind of like commonalities that are sort of the same across all of them, all of these spaces and groups, or are there any sort of broad categories that they tend to break down into? I know like white supremacy and misogyny are important components of a lot of them. Um, but maybe if there's anything else that sort of links them in your mind. Um, yeah, I mean, there are a dizzying array of tendencies and I could like talk for 50 hours about the like minute differentials between different tendencies and, right. and whatnot. But I think, uh, I mean, first of all, one thing to recognize on the far right is that it sort of goes back again and again to violence, that violence is the root of all of it, whether it's the sort of QAnon style, more passive, like violent fantasizing about all of your enemies being taken out by military tribunals and shot, whether it's the accelerationist sort of downloading bomb making manuals and thinking about you know, which power station is the softest target near you, um, whether it's kind of the, the neo-Nazi obsession with creating an ethno state, um, that like the far right, uh, its engine is violence. And I think that's the sort of only firm generality that I can hold to uh, across every far right tendency. And, and, and you know, that, that for me is like why the fight against it is so urgent. Um, the other thing I would say, I mean, this is more unsolicited advice, but if you're like figure, trying to figure out where to start as an anti-fascist, the answer is always your town, your city, where you live, you know, both in terms of looking at anti-fascist initiatives to join in your geographic area and also identifying members of hate groups in your area. 
you know, uh, identifying uh, individuals who are making hateful posts and, and seeing, you know, where they're employed, are they in positions of power, um, you know, that kind of thing. You can do that. As um, my friend Molly put it, Molly Conger put it in the Washington Post, um, if you've stayed up all night stalking your ex's photos on Instagram, uh, you have the skill set it takes to dox a Nazi. Um, and you should start where you live because anti-fascism is about defending your community. That's great. Yeah, I think we definitely want to get more into some of the anti-fascist organizing that you have seen. But before we turn to that, I just wanted to go back to what you were talking about, about violence for a moment. Um, I think that was such a thoughtful way of putting it and really helps me conceptualize the way that these groups sort of interlink. Um, I was just thinking about how, you know, you mentioned the Unite the Right rally being kind of an activating moment for you. And we've seen just so much far right violence since Trump has been in office. Um, the shooting at the Tree of Life synagogue, um, the shootings in Kenosha this past year, um, you know, the attempted coup two weeks ago. Um, but I guess I'm almost afraid to ask this, but do you think that we'll see less far right violence now that Trump is out of office? I mean, like I would much rather be like a false prophet than a Cassandra. Um, I have to admit, like, like I said, I breathed a sigh of relief when uh, things today went off without a hitch. And, you know, I think a lot of people in this space will be holding their breaths all week um, just in case. Um, I think it's a mixed bag, right? Because, you know, Trump as this figurehead, as this sort of um, perennial sort of insider-in-chief, um, like, really mainstreaming, like, white nationalism, uh, inspiring the sort of fanaticism, and, of course, like, persistently advocating violence. That was a real animating force for a lot of far-right groups. Um, at the same time, as we saw with the rise of the Tea Party... Um, being in a position of opposition, you know, being mm, positioned as sort of uh, like the noble warriors against entrenched power is a very powerful animating force for conspiracy movements, uh, mm. violent movements, um, you know, especially like, <laughs> you know, everything from Second Amendment gun paranoia to uh, you know, just simple sort of loathing of any even half-hearted attempts at racial justice or immigration, humane immigration reform can be really powerful driving forces into the arms of, of white nationalism. And so, um, you know, I would say having, like, you know, with Trump, you had this interesting situation where QAnon was essentially a very elaborate conspiracy theory whose upshot was, no, it only looks like Trump is an idiot. He's actually a godlike savior. I mean, it was always a little bit uncomfortable for them to have their figurehead in power. 
you know, while also considering themselves the sort of in movement of noble insurgents, um, you know, at least for some tendencies of the far right. So I think, you know, we're going to see, uh, I, 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 the short answer is no, I don't think far right violence is going to go away because we have them now in a position where they can say like, we are the sort of counterculture warriors fighting against the powers that be. Right. Yeah. I was, I was afraid you might say that, but I mean, it, it does make sense that there, you know, these factors that have been driving people further towards extremism haven't gone away just because Biden is president now. Um, I guess I wanted to maybe turn to some more hopeful things and ask if you could talk about things you've seen in this reporting that have and research that have made you hopeful. Like what kinds of things are anti-fascists doing that are cool that you've gotten to see or be part of while doing this work? Well, I mean, the hope has always been in, in the people, um, you know, in the camaraderie. Uh, there's a group of women that I dedicated the book in part to that are sort of in this anti-fascist space um, that I speak to every day and, you know, their efforts are unending and, um, you know, very, very brave. <laughs> and that's always given me hope. I mean, it's really a variety of things from like, you know, mutual aid in the face of coronavirus uh, to um, doxing your local fascist, you know, whether it's a business owner or someone on the school board, you know, um, it's people getting together to say like no passer on right uh no not in my town not in my neighborhood not in my heck farmer's market <laughs> as uh one anti-fascist group in bloomington really started because there was a neo-nazi couple at a farmer's market there um and that was sort of revealed and there's this group that's been trying to like bar them from the farmer's market for like literally years at this point, but they haven't given up the fight. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's people standing up where they live across the country um, in movements, big and small and gestures, big and small. And that's what gives me hope. Yeah. That's I mean, that all sounds really great. Thank you for that. Um, what what advice do you have for people who are maybe newer to the anti-fascist movement or wanting to get more active in opposing fascism? Do you have any recommendations for where people should start besides reading your book, of course? Uh, well, um, <laughs> some other books you can read uh, are... Um, Again, talking about the role of women, uh, Sisters in Hate by Sayward Darby, Red Pill, Blue, Blue Pill by David Nywart. Um, those are some good recent books on this stuff. Um, <coughs> in terms of like what you can do, I mean, first of all, pace yourself uh, is my advice. Like, you, you know, 
try to get a lay of the land, read as much as you can uh, first. You know, um, this isn't work you can kind of dive into without knowing a little bit of what you're about first. And second of all, start local. Start in your community, you know, uh, start in your hometown up to online. You know, uh, like figure out who, you know, like what your local newspaper uh, reporters are like so you can maybe leak some details to them once you've come up with an investigation. Be thorough. Don't dox in a half-baked way. And, um, you know, remember that the best anti-fascism is, is, is defensive work. It's about protecting our communities uh, against far-right organizing. And so that means if you see someone saying overtly racist white power stuff and they're in a position of local power, like, get that out there as best you can. Build an audience and build... Um, build power with comrades and, uh, and, you know, start where you live. That's super good advice. Um, so I guess what, what did you notice about gender in this context? I know it's like kind of circling back to things, but we didn't know how long we were going to have with you. Um, but just kind of circling back to, I guess, your experience with gender, um, and and anti-fascist work. I mean, so I do I do devote quite a bit of the book actually to the question of uh, gender in the, on the far right, and um, partly due to just like the Gonzo methods I had to employ by virtue of being a Jewish woman and like you know sort of an outspoken anti-fascist. Um, I had to like go through the back door, you know, under these false names a lot of different times, and. Um, found myself a little bit less successful at infiltrating like the white supremacist sort of women's spaces um, just because they're a little less dumb than their male compatriots and a little more careful like oh have, has anyone met you in person can anyone vouch for you and I'm like mm. um, no uh, but um, there are definitely tendencies on the far right that are male dominated they're not all male dominated like the militia group that I was infiltrating, like had a lot of women in it. <laughs> um, actually, uh, some of the strongest, like most deranged voices there were women. That being said, there are a lot of far right tendencies, particularly like obviously the Proud Boys and uh, some of the more overt neo-Nazi groups, the more sort of consider like considering themselves very hardcore, like accelerationist groups are all men. And so I think there are two things that I just like want to bring up as pertinent that um, there's also the sort of like incel to white supremacist pipeline, which I cover mm. at length in the book, if you're interested in that. Um, but uh, the, the two things that I noticed, like one uh, anti-feminism and misogyny are like really strong parts of the pipeline to white supremacy online. Um, like often these sort of right wing, slick talking, high produced 
YouTubers who, you know, spew right and far right talking points start with anti-feminism and misogyny as like the sort of starting point. Like, you know, oh my God, they made an all-female Ghostbusters or like they're not showing as much titty in video games as, as they used to. Um, using these points as sort of relatable cultural grievance because misogyny is so, so acceptable. It's sort of the background noise of our culture. Um, and what they wind up doing is basically telling, targeting a mostly male audience and saying, the reason you feel lonely and displaced and confused about your lot in life is because feminists have taken away like the strong gender roles that used to guide us and uh, you know, you are not being given your due as a man. And so, you know, what you do there, it's a neat rhetorical jujitsu move. Like you create a class of people that it's okay and even laudable to harass to it feminists. And you create a rhetorical environment in which, oh, this like, you know, ideology that's about social justice and progress is actually what's impeding you in life. Mm. Um, and from there, it's like you know, so, you know the ground is very soft to sort of right. say and also black people and right. also Jews like you know also anti-racism is holding you back also like Jews are holding you back you know so it's really very much part of the greased shoot into the pit um, and, and then the other part of it is that um, this obsession with archaic gender roles the idea of like the sort of chaste white woman whose womb is the key to securing the future of the white race, like this is a really vital point of white supremacist ideology. Um, and so, the, you know, they, they t sometimes talk about like white Sharia and like, you know, imposing control over women's reproductive rights, over women's wombs, over women's sexuality uh, and like securing, you know, the 14 words, the sort of catechism of the, white supremacist movement is like we must secure a future for ourselves and for our white children and like white children means white women means white wombs um and so you know there it really is a lot about control of women and uh, that's sort of the the cornerstone of the movement and so those are two of the ways that gender fits in and and some women kind of like that vision because they see themselves as sort of cherished in that mode of the world or you know they're discontented they're dissatisfied and sort of lean in feminism has left left a lot like white feminism has let, left a lot of us high and dry and feeling pretty discontented in this world and some of us like some people lean into really retrograde and damaging ideologies to heal the wound inside yeah well, thank you so much for joining us, Talia. Yeah, thank this you was so much. great. Um, we really appreciate call me, hearing your thoughts. You can call me Stone Cold Steve Bummer. Um, oh, <laughs> I am, you know, we can Whatever. smell what you're cooking. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully it's better than like what the fascists are cooking. Exactly. That shit looks terrible. Right. <laughs> terrible. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. That was our episode. If you liked what you heard, you can give us money on Patreon at patreon.com/slash season of the bitch. 
there you will get episodes one day early you'll also be able to join our reading group which meets every two weeks excellent thing excellent group of people we're starting um, octavia butler parable of the sower which is really yes, exciting we're gonna be reading some fiction that we're which very is excited about yeah. In the same vein, I keep thinking we should add Detransition Baby by Tori Peters onto it if we can find a PDF of it. Yeah. But I'm in the middle of reading totally. it Totally. TBD, uh, we may be reading that with the reading group. So yeah. join us. <laughs> exactly. Um, you can also find us on Instagram at Season of the Bee, on Twitter at Season of the Bee, and you can rate, review, and subscribe on apple i don't know if you can subscribe on apple podcasts never mind i think i'm just stuck in yes, youtube yes you can okay i, I think you like, can okay subscribe to us everywhere if you can subscribe on any platform you should subscribe basically um on apple podcasts we're on spotify now as well so you can find us there and finally you can send us an email at season of the bee at gmail.com or don't you know and if you're lucky we might read it on the podcast yes. so you know <laughs> Exactly. So yeah. Love you. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Season of the bitch. <laughs>